So why are these messages of resilience important? Well, today, as I go into, I'm not sure how many weeks of working in my home office, and I'm in the middle of a global pandemic, the first in my lifetime. And right now I can see the green hills of Canterbury if it was daylight, and that's not normal at this time of year. Meanwhile, our colleagues in Southland are in drought. And overnight, the IPCC report reminded us that the evidence around climate change is really clear and globally we must act now. So for New Zealand food producers and all of you for the, the extraordinarily high quality and safe food that you produce, the, press, the pressures are going to continue and the demands from our customers and consumers are going to just keep pressing us upwards. So tonight's resilient discussion brings the farmer voice and we've got a great panel with us. And it's about turning challenge into opportunity. How do we realize the opportunities amongst these challenges? And what are the sort of tools that we've got on this journey? So to introduce our panel, I'm going to start, please, Andrew Morrison. Hi everyone, uh, yeah, I'm Andrew Morrison. I'm uh, first and foremost a father and a Southland sheep and beef farmer. Um, so I am the chairman of Beef and Lamb New Zealand at the moment. But, you know, look, I really appreciate being on here tonight because I'm just keen to talk through this. Why do I do what I do? Um, and I'm going to talk about that later. I love people and I love rural communities. And now I could sit at home on the farm uh, doing what I love, but I am so proud of what we do as a sector. And this is my time to give back to the industry and try and get some stuff right. So that's that's what I'm here to keen to talk about tonight. Thanks, Andrew. Emma Crutchley. Um, name's Emma Crutchley. Um, I am a Maniataito farmer and we farm in the southern sort of southwest corner of the Maniataito um, and this, that's central Otago about two hours north of Dunedin. I don't know how far this audience goes but um, the other hat I wear, sheep and beef farmer, the other hat I wear is um, I am the project executive um, for a large jobs for nature funded catchment project called Tiaki Maniataito under our catchment um, group Apatari White and at, in August last year we signed a deed of funding with Ministry for the Environment for um, four and a half million dollars over five years. Um, the strength of our catchment group is it's multi-stakeholder and um, I just um, I'm really passionate about the opportunities that that brings on its own and I, um, I'm really honoured to be part of um, this panel discussion tonight, really, it's um, it's a great opportunity and a great group of people. So thank you. Thanks, Emma. Mark Cox. Hey, kia everyone. Um, yeah, look, I, I come from uh, Timaru, just out of Timaru on a farm out from out there. I ended up in a, a reasonably long career going through um, Massey University up to up to Gisborne to a company called Sedenko. I was introduced to, to cropping, um, a bit more intensive cropping than I was used to. Um, down in South Canterbury and from there I started my own business which led me through um, 15 or 20 years of marketing my own produce overseas and growing and, and packing marketing overseas. I then uh, through a partnership we started an investment company called Craigmore uh, about 2009 so we've had 10 years of, of um, raising money and deploying capital uh, throughout New Zealand really uh, in all the main main sectors, um, and uh, other than that, uh, my wife and I farm a couple of farms in Canterbury here. Um, uh, now that I'm um, not so much involved in the executive Craigmore, and so we, we're just dairy support and beef farming here. 
uh, in Canterbury. Thanks, Mark. And last but not least, Nigel Woodhead. Yeah, kia ora, everyone. Uh, Nigel Woodhead. I farm 400 hectares between Milton and Balclutha, just a couple of minutes off State Highway 1. And it's usually green like that, but it is not at the moment. It is brown and <laughs> looking pretty sad. So, uh, yeah, we, we definitely fall into the South Otago drought part of it. Um, but like Andrew down south, uh, I farm this place with my wife, Leanne, and we've got a couple of wee kids. And we lease, lease the farm off my parents. So, um, yeah, it's usually, usually not a bad place to be. Um, how did I come to find myself here tonight? Uh, I've sort of been involved in a whole lot of industry stuff um, after being heavily involved in New Zealand Young Farmers and happened to win the FMG Young Farmer of the Year in 2017. Um, was involved in the primary sector council and um, a bit of beef and lamb thing, a few beef and lamb things, and uh, currently sit on the um, contest subcommittee for the FMG Young Farmer of the Year, so the governance team for the FMG Young Farmer of the Year. And um, I'm also a co-opted member of the Otago South River Care. Um, so a wee bit like Emma, um, we're a um, catchment group that have also um, had some funding from... Um, from government to put together a project for the betterment of the catchment in South Otago. So um, a bit like Andrew, really love farming and love being a farmer, but also love doing some off-farm things and, and getting involved in community and love dealing with people as well. Thanks, Nigel, and thanks, panel. So look, for, the, for our audience, thank you for joining us. Thank you for choosing uh, this event for your evening. We've got a series of questions. We're going to get some views from the panel on and then there'll be a chance for you to, uh, well, throughout the evening, please put your questions into the chat and we will monitor them as we go. And then there will be a session sort of around 8.15, which will be an open floor to ask questions of our panelists. So to kick off, Andrew, when we were um, talking about where tonight was going to go, you made a statement, something along, what we do today does not define what we do tomorrow. But I'm interested, Andrew, in your view, sitting as the chair of Beef and Lamb, uh, one of the um, esteemed statesmen of the panel tonight, shall we say, you've been in the industry a little longer than some of our other colleagues tonight, your view on the industry and our connectedness, as we think about this finding opportunity, resilience with what's coming at us, seeing opportunities rather than challenge, the connectedness that you see, the importance between our different industry sectors and farmers, and as a nation. So how is that delivering to our resilience? Yeah, well, look, I'll go right back to even how I introduced myself. A guy taught me years ago, look, why are we doing what we're doing? And that's why I actually introduced myself as a father first, because you go right back to what are we doing and why are we doing it? And then you sort of cascade that out, family, communities, food producing, the things we do. One of the challenges we've got is that we don't constrain ourselves, though, because what we do today doesn't actually influence what we do. Well, it doesn't dictate what we do tomorrow. And if we get caught in that, you know, that sort of mindset of not having the ability to change or embrace change, then it can be quite a scary place. So it sounds kind of weird when you're the chairman of Beef and Lamb saying, look, I'm actually land use agnostic because I want New Zealand to be the best that it can. Um, so I'm not going to protect um, our sheep and beef at all costs. I want people that farm land to have all the choices that they can. And so working across sectors and with sectors to actually enable that actually serves us all better. 
of course, you know, with inside that statement, I'd like people to be as profitable as they can be. If they choose to be sheep and beef farmers, I want them to be really profitable. If they choose to be hawk growers, foundation variable, or for crop, crop growers, whatever, I want them to be successful. But I don't really want to scupper another industry. And, and it, it's, you know, and I, I don't pull my air industry up by pulling another industry down. And I think over the years, sometimes it's taken us a wee bit to sort of learn that. Um, we've all sort of criticised other industries for their perceived impacts, or so we believe, and maybe not taking the ownership of our issues. So hence the reason I think there's some real maturity entering the sector now, how the sector bodies, like you see in Haywaki Canal, with 11 different industry groups working together. And I'm really, really proud of that connectedness. Before I shut up, I'll just say one more thing. The other thing I reckon we're really good at is stuff we've created in New Zealand that lets us, all our fathers and our grandfathers created, that lets us be really good farmers at home because we've got a bunch of really good cooperatives, a bunch of really good levy organisations, a bunch of really good things like Federated Farmers. And we can all just be really good what we do at home. Nigel, has Andrew made it so sound simpler than it actually is, this connectedness? Oh, everything's, everything's simple to talk about, isn't it? Um, to, to, to a point, but at the same time, um, yeah, it's a whole lot of little easy things built up to be something that can can be quite tough at times. And that's that's how, um, you know, it's really easy to find yourself in tough places on a farm when a whole lot of little, little things build up and turn into this thing. So, um, I think the connectedness is is an easy one to talk about, and um, once you sort of once it's something that you work on actively, it, it, it's easy to it's easy to get going because it can be something as as simple as a phone call or a beer over the fence with a neighbour, or just making a minute to have, you know, have have a have time just you and your and your partner, whether it's your wife, your husband, or something else, you know, in, in a busy life um, and. It's all about people at the end of the day. Eh? Like, um, I think probably all of us spoke about people in our introductions, and, and that's what it all boils down to: is is, is the people and, and the connectedness that comes with that. And it it can't be understated. Eh? Mark, I just want to get you to follow up on this. Do you think we've had to? You know, you've, you're in that unique situation of looking across that we're being investing in, in the industries across the industries. Have we had to hit some really tough places for our industries to really connect up in the way that Andrew's been talking about? I think um, you're right. I think there's been a number of sectors that have actually had to really get to not you know nearly the wall before they've made some really bold, bold calls. Um, one of the ones that I, I particularly uh, saw in the when I was, I was sort of in the in the market as well saw around the, the kiwi fruit guys in the late '90s, early 2000s when. Quite frankly, there was there was no money in kiwi fruit, which seems ludicrous now given the the last ten years. But they were really on their knees. A lot of the guys were having to work in town and have their orchard as a hobby. Um, yet that industry sat down and said, "I want to do um, research." So they spent, uh, I think it was, I'm not too sure of the exact numbers, but it was sort of in the millions, tens of millions of dollars, probably forty to fifty million dollars was um, into plant and production research at the time, and they also uh, committed to at least um, 10% of FOB in in-market um, uh, sort of work that they, they 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 launched at the same time, and 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 not a lot of them saw any returns until you know mid to late 2000s, um, and it showed a boldness that 
you know a lot of our other industries have to have to look at and say actually can we take uh, some of those lessons yeah great example thanks mark um andrew facilitators right here we had saw the ipcc come out overnight we've got hiwaka ikonoa right now i think the industries mark can i'm sorry andrew can be proud that the industries have been investing i'm thinking pdgrc the new zealand agriculture greenhouse gas center um, we have been a global leader in our research on mitigation for our gases. We might not have the answers yet, but Andrew, you know, have we done a little bit of what Mark's talking about that's been a strength of the Kiwi fruit? Yeah, look, I believe we have. And, you know, we do have sheep genetics knocking on the door. We're doing the EBVs there now that, you know, if you choose to do single trait selection on sheep, you will be able to meet your 10% reduction targets. Now, that's because we've done a whole bunch of work with ag research over the years to identify those, uh, the, the different genetics there. You know, the inhibitor work, the vaccine, like it's it's like second guessing God, that stuff, you know, identifying methanogens within rumens, working out how you're going to knock them down. That's pretty hard stuff. But, you know, New Zealand is certainly leading the way in that space. And um, yeah, no, really proud that we read the writing on the wall back in the early 2000s, 2003 and have been consistently investing with collaborating across sector, deer industry, uh, de uh, dairy industry, ag research, government. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, Andrew, and I guess we're reminded, what was it, $106 billion invested in a COVID vaccine. So, you know, if we had deeper pockets, that proved, I guess, globally, if we worked together globally, what we could achieve in a very short time, didn't it? And that's a pretty good lesson. Mark, opportunities you've given us a little taste in your introduction but tell us about finding opportunity and perhaps navigating the hurdles to get there um i suppose to give you some context um i've uh over my career i've thrown a fair amount of um, stuff at the wall to try and unlock new products uh, like a lot of people um and i suppose the lessons i've learned is that the um the business uh, model has to be pretty um resilient um to be, you know, successful long term. So, um, and the things what I mean by that is that um, quite often in, in our, um, our new product uh, development, we we we're so enthusiastic about the product, and it may be um, a situation like we did with black currants. And, I, and please don't, um, um, please don't you know, call this as a as a, a advocate for black currants or a detractor from black currants. But this is just our experience. We went into that because we we had an interest in land. Um, we had an interest in uh, growing a cropping uh, business down in um, um, in the Canterbury region, and so there was some other reasons to do it. But when once we bought a property that had black currants on, we started to realise how good uh, black currants are, and actually how good black currants from New Zealand are because the research had just come out that showed um, some fantastic qualities that was far better than the world. Uh, black currants but we probably misunderstood where we stood in the world and that's the big point I really want to make sure that everyone's clear on is is that when you've got a, um, a product that you're so enthusiastic about you actually need to step back from it and really figure out where we fit in the world um, to be of scale we need to export it to be of um, um, uh, you know to be sustainable we need to get something um, that is going to actually compete so one of the things we found with black currants is is we didn't do that research and once it got down to a pinch point uh, quite frankly um, the polish could grow up for a third of the price of us 
Um, no matter how good our black currants were from a quality point of view, um, the buyer basically said, well, we can just buy a bit more of these to concentrate theirs up. Um, so all the basics, we just couldn't quite get through um, that the, um, this, what we thought would might be a story from New Zealand, all those things that, that really help um, didn't help because fundamentally we weren't competitive. So that's one of the things that I, it was a pretty hard lesson for me because I felt like we had such a great product, but it was a, it was a, it was a pretty um, salutary lesson in the end. Mark, that's a really interesting one because you, you'd already come through quite a lot of experience with your international marketing and your time in, um, up in Gisborne. What was it? Did it seem there was a market there or what led to you guys not kind of joining those dots until you were in the middle of it? Uh, well, I actually, um, by chance, because I was developing a, a retail product up, up there at the same time. So I was with the Black Current Marketing guys up there prior to doing this. So you'd think I'd actually have listened enough in those times. But um, it seems like we had some really uh, unique characteristics within our Black Currents. Um, and, and, I, and I suppose I, I really bought into the product. It was a superfood. I really was enthusiastic. But I probably didn't step back enough to actually look at it and say, right, where do, where do we where do we sit for the next 10 years while we're trying to get to those really high-end markets and those in those various places like Japan that we've been going to meetings to? So um, it's not the only thing. I think there's uh, they're resetting themselves at the moment. We had a, um, a situation with Ribena. Uh, Glaxo was a big company. They're buying our black currants for a long time, so that underpinned the, the business. They sold to the Japanese, um, and the history with Japanese um, juice companies have been that they buy the the most cost-effective around the world. So um, we didn't see that when we bought it. It was a bit of a, you know, a, a left-field thing. Whereas Glaxo, when they owned it, they wanted to have provenance and English and you know, counter-seasonal stuff from New Zealand. So it was, it was a little bit of uh, unluckiness or change in circumstances that created it. But it realised that if you've got something like that, you have to make sure that you're still competitive. So from black currants to where... Where, does you, where do you want to take our story now about these opportunities? Well, I suppose we've been in the market investing in um, forestry, um, horticulture and, and uh, livestock dairy mainly. Um, and we've got uh, certain restrictions that, that you, uh, around environmental with, with dairy that we've, we've cognitive of. So we've been looking uh, elsewhere. Our investments have been uh, into hops um, is another uh, one that we've put a reasonable amount of investment into, which is a new product. And again, I'm looking that through the lens of black currants, um, uh, that it could be that we're actually, we're a very small hop player in the world. We have got some pretty cool varieties and we've got IP over those varieties. But again, um, as they consolidate craft brewery up, there could be some um, consolidation of the buying and they may just go off, you know, the flavours that some of our hops are doing. So pretty, it looks like it's it's going to be successful. I think we're competitive yield-wise around the world, but it is still a product that has got some uh, headwinds if there's some changes. And it is a bit of a fashionable thing being the flavours within a drink. Um, apples, another difficult one, been through real hard times over the years. Um but they've start, now started um, to build a, a, a cupboard of, of varieties that are actually starting to compete. Um, fundamentally, we're a really good grower. Um, Hawke's Bay can outdo Washington by 20% year on year. Um, 
it's still got some headroom and it's competitive competitiveness um they don't even use very um not a lot of uh, really good techniques so um, washington has the very best techniques growing you could possibly get and yet hooks bay is still out competing yield wise um so i think there's there's um just to go to my earlier point um when you've got good volumes and you can actually grow things competitively like we can in our sheep and beef industry you've actually got a, 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 a you know a solid place in the world markets emma feeling confident to go put some apples in your front paddock i mean, I mean i'm hearing mark say make sure we understand not only what we can produce mark and what the markets look like and understanding where those winds are coming from is that what you'd leave us with mark this point yeah that's from a from a, um, a product point of view there's a few mm. following on from memory I, I, you know there's a few things around how you can put these um do it better than we did is from a um a uh you know a grow or a farm point of view working as a community i think there's some can you touch on that community aspect please because that was something that interested me when we were when you were talking in our farmer group recently that how many if i want 10 hectares of apples what do I need yeah. to create a local industry? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, um, well, it was around apples, actually. Um, we're trying to solve a solution in Canterbury around our cows. We feel as though there's going to be increasing pressure on, on our footprint issues from an environmental point of view. Um, rather than sitting there and, and waiting for that to happen, we've been looking at um, uh, what we can do on farm. And I suppose it goes back to back to the future or whatever, whatever you, how the saying goes, that in the past, um, you know, when my dad was farming out of Tamuka, he'd have um, a mixed uh, sheep and beef cropping. He had a whole range of things going on his farm in order to survive at the time and, and to manage his risk. Um, so we've been doing a lot of monoculture farming, particularly in, in the dairy um, areas of the country. And so we've been trying to figure out ways of um, economically changing the land use um, rather than just reducing cows and eroding value because that's not kind of what the point is. So um, we've thrown a fair bit of mud at the wall. We've got seed crops in Canterbury we could use. Um, we've got apples. We could possibly do some grapes, but it's, it's not really the right climate for ripe varieties. And again, with apples, they still need to do a lot of work on cold climate varieties in New Zealand. But the, re the point is, is that um, you fall into this uh, situation where um, you're, a, you're a good dairy farmer, fantastic dairy farmer, Someone comes along and suggests that you put 20 hectares on your paddock, on your farm, which is no problem. You can, you can do that. But you're missing the crucial ingredient, which is management skills. And, and again, that's um, what we did in Black Currents. But, you know, what you need is a community that says, actually, we need to get together as, as 10, 15, 20 farms, all putting in 20 hectares so we can get a, enough crop uh, to, to get all the post-harvest facilities in place. And it's that cooperative model that we've used so so well in the past that actually has created all these things. So um, what I'm suggesting is not that new. It's just just how the, how we can structure some um, new products going forward is that we actually need to you know really get farmers together so they're not completely on their own and also you can grow a lot quicker. So because the risk each for each farmer is a lot lower. Thanks, Mark. So Emma. Mark's talked about this kind of cooperative approach. Before you, before we get you to jump in, because I do want you to talk about Tiaki Maniatoto and your story, 
can you see a future in the kind of catchment work that you're doing that might end up with um, apples or another suitable crop with that cooperative approach to building a new industry in your region? How strong so, are the catchments? So if we can use apple trees to offset our methane emissions, I'm all in. That's awesome. Um, and that's honestly one of the things um, that's crossed my mind, like what, what sort of tree crops can we can we use that would count in the space to bring in as a diversification to what we're doing? Um, not so much berries, I don't think they count as woody vegetation. Um, and um, what was the next bit, Robin? Um, community okay. Tiaki Maniatoto. So talk about Tiaki Maniatoto and the power of that connectedness of the the wider catchment and the rural community and building those bridges. What does it mean? Yes. How is that building opportunity? So I feel like um, there, is, there is a lot of focus on what the government's doing and the government itself is responding to public outcry around the state of our environment, the state of our freshwater, or they were in 2017 when they got elected. And, and that, that has resulted in... Um, a lot of action and a lot of um, regulatory change which is happening very, very fast and there is a lot of um, pushback around that and it's aimed straight at the government and I feel like that's a reaction and I feel like in reacting to the government we can actually lose sight of how we respond and if we look and I know Mark sort of talked about some of what's happening overseas and some of the opportunities like I think we need to put the reaction aside and start thinking, well, why did they, why did, why is the government doing what it's doing? And look at it from a different perspective. Oh, they're actually reacting to what, what's happening overseas, public outcry, da, da, da. And then you sort of start thinking about how you respond to that. And catchment groups are specifically well placed for that because catchment groups are community and they're not a they're not an industry silo they're actually part of wider stakeholder group like I mentioned with our project it's um we include fishing game Otago, um walking access commission um and department of conservation and we work um quite we work in quite strongly with the um timana o tairi na'awa project and so we've got all those partnerships going on and if you can build those relationships at catchment levels then you're actually getting to the root of the problem and um, so then when you've got everyone together then yes you can just start looking at what you can achieve instead of focusing on what the issues are. And how does having everyone together go from the conversation to the action? So is it peer pressure to act on my own farm because we're all in it together? Um, no, I think it's probably more around joint solutions. Mm -hmm. um, so you start sharing ideas and um, like say everyone's on, on a waterway, um, you can see a joint issue with that waterway. You can actually go beyond what the government would ever achieve with regulations anyway. And hey, that's such an opportunity when you're marketing what you produce off that land in an international market, isn't it? So I, I really like, I would really love to see more thought around response rather than that. Like we're automatically as humans, we're always drawn to the negative. And, and I think if you're internally aware of that, then you can sort of think, okay, and pull yourself out of that and start looking at where the opportunities lie. And when you form those relationships, it actually becomes a really safe space to speak up in a forum. Is that a, 
a time, how long has it taken to get here where you where you can say we have a safe space? Has it take is it time? What drives that creation of that safe space? really is time like um if i look at upper tire why previously the upper tire water resource management group like it's a 20-year journey of building those relationships so i'm second generation um and and it's just time face-to-face um connections which is actually really hard at the moment and that is another big challenge and i think getting around that is just sort of like getting on the phone we do a lot of zooms um and doing everything you can but acknowledging that it's a challenge but don't let that hold you back as well do you think it's hard if we if we look back to our to our grandparents generation uh society society was moving differently so everyone went to church on a Sunday there was a lot a lot of kind of fixed community activity you know have we lost that along the way when we found social media and now we're refinding it through these catchment groups I'm not sure like I think I can't speak um to, to a lot of that feedback but like I think we can um, ask Andrew that in a minute <laughs> it's a good idea um we um we became very comfortable in our own industry, I think. And there wasn't a lot, I don't think, I think we were far too comfortable for a long time and that suddenly built up when we weren't looking. Now, Mark and Andrew, I'm looking to you being our more senior members of the panel. You know, the 1980s and early 1990s was not a comfortable time for New Zealand's agriculture. Uh, and, but it was a time perhaps when those community structures were not as strong as they had been in previous generations. So do we have these aha moments that force us to find resilience that Emma is finding now with everything being dumped from a regulatory perspective? Your thoughts? Right. I was listening to Emma there. You know, we have a great history in New Zealand of joint solutions. You know, you look about the early formation of cooperatives. You look at the early formation of people working together to try and find solutions either in communities or at a national level. And, you know, then we'll say, you know, because, you know, New Zealand is disproportionately represented or has been over the years on the creation of the cooperatives, fertiliser cooperatives, retail cooperatives, you know, dairy cooperatives. Gee, we all had one at the end of each each row in, in history down here in Southland. Then, you know, so it was a really good question, Robin. You know, we had the economic reset of the 80s. And in reality, what we're having now, we've trucked on about 40 years and now we're having the environmental reset, which is actually a flow on impact of when we deregulate in the 80s, we said, crack on, boys, go out, be really successful, you know, stand on your own two feet. And our farming community listened to that message and they were really, really, really good at that. And they went off and they chose all different types of land use and they got really, really good at it. The one thing we didn't factor was as we intensified and got really good, we didn't factor, we didn't have a full understanding of our impact on the environment. And that's the next, oh, gosh, we're going to have to sort some stuff out moment that we're in the midst of now. Mark, did Andrew hit the nail on the head or what did he miss? I think you pretty much got it on the head. I think, um, I don't think we, um, I don't sound like an old crony, but I, I don't think we've been bad as some countries around, uh, the, certainly the developed countries, uh, agricultural countries, as uh, our looking after our environment as some of those guys have. Um, We've put in some frameworks over the years um, around irrigation uh, that is pretty much unique to New Zealand. So I, I, I do think, Emma, you must be feeling a little bit like um, 
uh, we're running out of time to save um, save a lot of the stuff. And I, and I totally get that. We've, we've, I'm right on board with my farms trying to get all these plantings done. But um, and I think um, so. I, my gut feeling is that um, that the uh, the cooperative nature has been really really successful over the years to getting things started. I, I certainly know. Uh, from a productive, productive point of view and a processing, primary processing point of view, we've been pretty successful at doing that. I do think, though, that we don't do our market um, uh, work as collaborative as we could. Uh, I know that sounds odd with the Fonterras and the, and the Q fruit out there. What I'm, I'm saying is in new products, we tend to go out and um, all have a crack at the market. And so some of that early stage new, new product um, uh, work that we've done has shown for us to be uh, pretty inadequate at working together. We all have exporters that want to do their own thing. But time brings it all back together commercially. So I think, um, you know, it's only a moment in time that um, that we haven't been cooperative in, in the past. Um, so, yeah, I hope, hopefully that answers the question, Jane. Uh, Robin, sorry. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Nigel, so we have heard from Andrew that, you know, we've worried about the production. We didn't think about the environment. Uh, so we've just dumped it all on your shoulders. You've got to shoulder this going forward. So really interested. You've been very active in Young Farmers and, and in fact, Young Farmer of the Year. What's the role of organisations like Young Farmers and leadership of young people? Because one thing we see uh, if we look to the climate change, for example, young people are really impatient for change. So what's the role of young farmers to build more resilience at a time when perhaps we're going to have to be more agile to what's coming at us than ever before? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things in there. Can I, can I just reference the old bull guy in the room, um, Andrew, and, and, and talk, yeah, there's, there's been a couple of you, you, Robin, talking about, yeah, it was all about production, not about the environment. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not the one that, I don't like jumping up and down and saying the generation before us have ruined everything because I don't think that's the case at all. I think as humans, we react to what stimulus is put in front of us or or the signals that are put in front of us at any one time. And, and my parents, Andrew's generation, have just reacted to the signals that were coming at them at the time. And that was production, 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 development, yep. fertilizer, drainage, just get stuck into it and we're getting to a stage now it's going oh okay we um yep okay well there's some different signals now so we're reacting to the signals in front of us i don't think for a second that um that you know we can start pointing fingers and uh, i mean that stuff's not helpful for starters so um we just the signals change all the time and it's no different to, to any any other period of time in the past so that, that's right. sort of my right you know, now, a world view according to Nigel. Okay, um, so I want, I want the world view according to Nigel to tackle one other thing, and then I'm going to come to Jane Crystal's question. And that Nigel is, you and Leanne actually have a couple of um, quite diverse enterprises in your farming business. With Leanne's business, that's perhaps taken off much faster than you perhaps thought it was going to. Tell us a little bit about that and how that contributes to your personal resilience for your business. And perhaps how much that might be a shape of the future for farming businesses. Yeah, so we've sort of tripped on tripped, tripped and fell and found ourselves where we are. So just have context for the for the um, people on the, on the call. Um, my wife uh, Leanne runs um, a wee business. It was meant to be a side hustle that's turned into a 
more than a side hustle. It's, she's flat out called Remotely Creative, and it started at our wedding, um, doing graphic design and setting weddings up and, and um, doing the invites and all the fancy stuff for people's weddings. And now she's doing people's flowers. So, um, and we've got a whole lot of hire gear that, um, that, that I, I get roped in to build. So we've got archways and bits and pieces, all sorts of stuff to hire out. So um, we've, we've sort of, as, as a couple found ourselves, you know, we, we were very determined to be, to be a team and that the, the team, the pair of us would 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 tackle the farm and, and family life and get stuck into it as a team. But we've sort of found ourselves very segregated in our day to day life. Where I'm the farmer, plus I help her do her wedding stuff when she when when um, wedding stuff's flat out. And Leanne's um, Leanne's doing the remotely creative stuff because they're both full time jobs. What it's what it's created is this situation where there's two very different things going on in our lives two very different balls being juggled and that can that can be a real battle at times but at the same time it's really cool you know like you know if we got a big wedding we'll, we'll quite often do full setups and styles and big weddings in Wanaka and Queenstown and down the Catlins and things yeah like on a Wednesday I've got to ditch everything on the farm leave it up leave it up to dad lucky dad's just down the road can look after the farm for me and and for the next three days I'm helping her put together wedding bouquets I'm putting up archways, I'm hanging fairy lights, I'm doing, you know, all this stuff getting set up for a wedding, it's great. I found it great for me, sort of my wee creative flair, but also gives me something else to think about. So as far as the future goes, um, you know, not not every not every couple, I suppose, will, will have, be lucky like we are to, to have found themselves in a position where you can have two distinct businesses running out of the same office, but it, it really creates you know going back to the resilience thing it creates this um the ability for us to think about different things at different times and really keep your mind fresh and it's yeah again it's really refreshing and it's it's actually a lot of fun um and you know i'm, I'm at pains to say we we've, it's just sort of we've found ourselves here a wee bit um but at the same time you know leanne's put a lot of hard work into it and um yeah, I'm working really hard on the farm. She works really hard on her business and hopefully the both of them will fly. I'm slightly fixated on Nigel and the flower arrangements, but I'm apologies, Nigel. I'm not saying you're not good at flower arranging. Emma, you too are in the young family situation balancing a lot of things. How important is it that stepping off farm and, and revitalising, if you like, jumping into the, the catchment group? Ah. Uh. <laughs> Um, it's important to get away from both of those things is what I'd say um, because they both work you need to, one is not a replacement for the other at all like um, when I get away I get away from both um, I think like you've got to be really clear like because there is so much going on in the environmental space and and that's where catchment groups is tied into all that you've got to be so clear about what you can take on and what you can't and I completely fail in this on a weekly basis, but at least I know I fail. But um, it's trying to pick an area that you can focus on with the limited time you have available. And Andrew nailed it at the start. Like my kids are always going to come first in this. Everything else is external to that. And it's about playing that balance game and of doing what's what's most important first and the rest all fits in around it there is no way I'm going to be over every environmental policy and be able to um, 
keep up with the deets of that but there are amazing people that are good in those lanes and I try and stick to where my skills have the best impact. Does that answer the question? Great thank you. Mark you must move around where you are um, seeing a lot of different farmers operating in, in different environments managing owning leasing whatever when you listen to the the talk around resilience and people what what are you is there anything you can observe from kind of the Craigmore coming and investing and putting people in to run these businesses like the your own? What are you telling them around their personal resilience? Oh well, I think um, as we all know, farming's uh, a fairly uh, full on. And as Emma was saying, it's pretty hard to get away from. Even if you're away from it, you're still thinking about farming. Or you know, most people I talk to farm. Are worrying about them so i'm sure you when you're putting the fairy lights up nigel you're still worrying about something on your farm um so it is a it is a full-on uh experience um so people that are lucky enough to own their farm have a have a kind of um uh, an ownership uh, feel to it that can can sort of feel as though there's a there's a greater gain for the longer term which gives you a little little bit of resilience but with most of our guys their management or well, they're um they're, they're there for a short time so um, they're doing all the same pressures, but um, have to be having uh, really good structures around them and good communication. And I suppose um, uh, to Emma's point before around the community thing is actually more important than any, any the community actually um, uh, communication connections are actually one of the strongest things we have in farming um, from, a, from uh, creating resilience. Um, the guys that isolate or girls that isolate themselves from the community are the ones that are most likely at risk. Um, because they're not they're not being able to deal with things, so therefore they're going in, in, inwards on themselves. So that, that's the sort of signs that we start to watch for: is, is are they are they engaged? Are they uh, being reasonable with staff? Um, and and if you know those those are all the sort of warning signs or canaries that we try and look for. Andrew, structure and communication is it any different to whether you're a, you're managing a business or owning a business? It's same success, is it? Oh, yeah, well, don't ask me because I'm far from an expert on anything, but um, the, the communication is the key to everything. You know, I even at a board level, you know, we got board members and, and you try to talk through stuff. The reality is that sitting on a board is just like being in a family. You know, you show respect, you you talk through your issues, you come to collective responsibilities. Um, so, yeah, look, to Mark's point, I think communication is everything. Great. Right. We've got some questions here that we're going to move to now. Uh, and wool. Can somebody please talk about the part, the future opportunities for wool? This is an open question to the panel. Who would like to tackle it? Can I start? Because one of my jobs is I do sit on the Ron's board, which yes. is started from you, please, Andrew. Wool Research Organisation New Zealand. We did a report back in 2012 called the Fahrenheit 212 report. We then put all our science money into what we call deconstructive technologies and have been doing so since. We're not going to knit our way out of or carpet our way out of our supply. You know, we don't have a supply issue. We have a demand issue uh, with wool. We got lots of wool we produce, but we're just not selling it in the, uh, the format that people get really excited about. I'm not decrying wool jerseys or carpets. They're great, but we just need to reconfigure some other products. So this deconstructive technology stuff we're doing is uh, 
We've built a pilot plant at Lincoln <coughs> as we speak, and our first one out of the blocks is what we call powders, paste, and pigments. And you'll be massively surprised. We did our first run of lipstick the other day using strong wool as the carrier for the uh, for the dyes involved in it. We're looking at replacing titanium oxide, which is usually the medium that carries the dyes. And there's a whole bunch of stuff, you know, like the banning of microbeads, the environmental story. As we're doing all this stuff, we put a discipline on ourselves that unless we reach a certain price point on farm, which I don't know if they're going to let me say it, well, you know, I'm going to say unless we can get a bit around $10 a kilo, we're not working on that sort of technology. We need to do a quantum shift on what we can give back to farmers. I'm feeling all right, Andrew, because I've got the pure wool carpet under my feet. I've got the wool jersey and I've got the lipsticks. So it's all good. And that's um, only one of the technologies. We're looking exactly, on. yeah. Um, comment from anyone else. I, I'm, I'm a little like you, Andrew. I feel like we need the science to deliver us those opportunities because in a time when we want to reduce our reliance on, on oil, we have an extraordinary product. Nigel, you look enthusiastic to come in with an opportunity. Yeah, I don't have anything specifically, but just just a couple of comments. I mean, we we we're operating in an age now where um, conscious consumers are are operating by the, or making dis, purchasing decisions based on values over the over um, over price and things, and and you know their their heart leads their head. And Mark, we we had discussion earlier on. Mark was talking about. Some of the investment firms he he had, he's dealing with have very specific criteria about their investments. That stuff is very values led. Now, if you find another product in the world like wool, which ticks all the values boxes over what the the products that could. Okay, so that that sounds come, great. Come over the, yeah. So I don't great in theory, Nigel, but my wool carpets almost feels like a dying breed, Mark. Yeah. Do we need to go down the lipstick pathway because we're not going to win the wall carpet battle? And do we have enough opportunity in that market, Mark? I thought I might have been the last one to be asked because I'm a pumpkin grower from Gisborne. But um, the um, I think Andrew's uh, absolutely, if that's what's been happening in, within the wool industry, I think that's kind of the research that we need to re-empower wool. Um, you know, we have flogged the carpet and, and yarn uh, for a long time, and I, and, I, um, and and I think that if we can uh, relook at it, you know, various things that I read over the years coming out of Otago University around proteins and all those things, which may be part of what you're talking about, Andrew, is, is to me how an industry reinvents itself. Um, so I, I think um, from a very unqualified point of view, I think Andrew's sort of what he's been talking about sounds like a lot of sense. Thank you. But what about like? I'll chip in quickly though. Quick. It's success is a sum of the parts. So it's carpet and jerseys yes. and, and the new technologies. It's not doing away with the old. Yeah. yeah Emma, I, just, I probably did hear that too. Sorry. Yeah. Emma, I've got a question yeah. for you. So quick comment on wool. Yeah, I was just gonna say what's it's it's such a sustainable fiber, right? Like um what is in the carbon space with wool? That's an Andrew question. You mean yeah, look, are you talking about the yeah. stored carbon? This yeah. is the, this is the same as the conversations around embedded carbon in woods. So mm -hmm. currently that stuff's not recognized, but that stuff, you know, we're trying to build this Haywalk Economic system that as you validate the science around embedded carbon and whatever product, then hopefully that'll be recognized. Yeah. 
Yeah. Emma, question for you. What else? So what else could we be missing? We focused on production in the 90s and didn't consider the environment. What should we be considering now so that in another 40 years, Emma, when you're looking at succession for your children, we don't have to do another reset because we didn't consider it now? I hope my children are farming and I'm not looking at succession in 40 years. <laughs> so um, what do we need to think yeah, about? And I'm going to come to the we, others too. It, it comes back to like, I think we had this conversation yesterday and it's around like it's around that holistic approach at farm level, right? Like we've got all these different challenges, um, fresh water, biodiversity, um, carbon and uh, animal health, animal shelter. How do we tick all those boxes at once okay. um, and Thank find you. that sweet spot? I'm going to stop you. The sweet spot of all of those things because they're all going to be equally important. Andrew, from you, People. what are we missing? People and animal welfare. So we've Thank got to set our, set our businesses up that we actually really reward our people and make a really embracing, uh, rewarding society. Mark. I think um, to, I'm actually going to make one of Emma's points is that the consumer actually is going to be the determination of what's going to be successful. And um, if we uh, embrace um, changing our farms to incredibly sustainable uh, operations, I think the consumer is going to like us and they're going okay. to buy the products. Nigel. Have they missed something? Only anything they've missed? No, but I'll go back to my values. But the the um, the consumer will will be driven by their values, and we we need to ensure that we as as producers ensure that we are driven by our values as well, more so than than just some some um, KPIs on a piece of paper. And um, okay. also being mindful that we can again we can only react to the stimulus that's coming at us at any one time and there's a lot coming at us now so if, you know we try and think too hard about what might happen in the future potentially could be quite easy to miss what's actually right in front of us so you know, let's give ourselves some credit and you know deal, deal with what we know at the moment and and be be mindful of the fact that we're going to be more intelligent in the future and we will be able to deal with what happens in the future in the future thank you we're going to have a lot of uh, emotional IQ to the future demands of our consumers. Andrew, uh, there's a couple of comments here around one size never fits all land and farming solutions, though, regarding carbon forestry and radiated pine infestation of productive farmland. Andrew, a very short comment as we come towards the end about our future landscapes. Yep, that comment's completely right. You know, we've got such a diversity of land use in New Zealand. Let's play to that strength. And one size certainly doesn't fit all. Offsetting carbon, you know, it's, it's a bit like a syntax, isn't it? You know, give the syntax, you know, but it's a bit, how would I word this? Just, we, we should be changing the core behaviour rather than offsetting or sort of saying, if I do this, I will offset my behaviour. What we need to do is stop the core behaviour. Which Thank is, you. Which is fossil fuel consumption. Mark, can the consumer see our investments off farm as clearly as land use choices within the farm, the boundary fence? Um, I actually think uh, on a number of products they can really well. Um, you know, we've done a lot of work around the New Zealand story overseas. Um, there's a lot of networks overseas that are now showing New Zealand uh, brand. Um, we've got an incredibly resilient brand overseas and um, we can't lose sight of the fact that that's what we're producing for 
every single one of us, um, whether it be a product that's really highly, um, you know, consumer orientated or we're, we're doing a commodity product. So I think we're, for a little country, because remember we're only tiny, I don't want to keep saying that, but we've always been built up within our, our psyche is that we're a bit bigger than we actually are on the world stage. And I, and I think um, from a brand New Zealand point of view, the work that's been happening over the last 20, 30 years is pretty fantastic. And there's individuals out there that have done better than that and obviously worse. But as an overall brand, we've actually not let ourselves down very, uh, let ourselves down at all. We've, we've been pretty bloody good. Emma, there's a quite a long statement in here. I'm going to try and turn it into a question for you. Wall is a real eco-friendly product. Why do environmentalists and others not see it as a sustainable product that it is? With apologies to the person asking it. That's, yeah. Is that because, is that coming back to um, the thing that's coming into my brain, tell me if I'm wrong, is do we need to, like we're telling this great story within our industry, are we, like it's, it's are we not stretching that out to actually tell that story and build those relationships so they actually understand properly? Um, right, let's go to Mark on that one. Mark, is it that we're not giving the message in a way that our international customers or consumers give a damn about wool and its sustainability? Um, it depends on where you are. You know, it's like our catchments in New Zealand. We have different different mindsets um the world is broken up by a whole range of different pressures you know in europe for example there's they're quite um uh going down a track of of sustainability so in in the information that comes to them is from a whole lot of different media which is not always correct as we know on a number of fronts and um, through to other parts of the world where they actually want the product because they want food um yeah. and so one size uh, doesn't fit all. Fit, you know, I think the word was not, one size doesn't fit all on on our land. Um, it's the same with the market. It's not really a straight answer. It sounds like I'm going around in circles, but reality is, um, wool is a fantastic product. I've always been gobsmacked. My old man was a wool buyer uh, for years, um, so kind of we lived in the wool shed, um, and I could never understand why uh, this this product we we you know take off the backs of our sheep isn't so successful around the world but reality is it hasn't been and we've we've sort of lived on the basis that it might be in the future yeah so, okay you know. can i stop you there mark because i want to quickly in the last two minutes your final comment from each of you so i'll leave you to last mark to gather your thoughts andrew a final comment on opportunity from challenge and resilience yeah, look, change is scary, and look, let's all just acknowledge that um, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is. But, you know, the simple thing is, do we want to be dictated by that and not make choices? The other thing is, you know, you, like I so I'm a farmer now. I'm not really too worried if my kids want to be farming, but if they do want to be farming, I want them to make the choices they want to make rather than be dictated what I do today. So that sort of scopes my thought process. You know, none of us are constrained by what we do today. We may love it, but um, we've got choices. Thank you. Emma? Yeah, okay. So back to that point I sort of made before, but there's a great story being told by our industry, but I challenge that this story is not being told jointly by our community as well. And until we get to that point around relationship buildings, building trust, resilience, we're always going to run into this problem where the, 
the government is responding to lobbies of people that don't understand our industry. Thank you. Nigel? I don't actually know how to, how to follow those two, to be fair, but I just reckon we're in the box seat in New Zealand and in our industry. You know, we, we produce this amazing product that, you know, that, frankly the world wants you know the the world protein prices at the moment have gone stupid for a whole lot of reasons but people people are paying it for the product we produce and you know again i go back to the values you know people are driven by their values and we broadly we tick all of the values that people are looking for which is you know open space healthy animals healthy environment at a high level yeah thank you nigel i'm going to stop you mark yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I don't know if my connection's this good, but it's, it's always hard to be the last one. But I'd, I'd like to say that actually um, I support everyone has been saying, and it's not just because I'm, uh, I've been, t- been really told to answer that way, but I think the, the way we are in the world is that we're not that far from fronts. Uh, we've just got to keep striving to make ourselves a better brand and, and, and our product will follow. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there's some real frustrations in some of our sectors. Well, is a, is a classic one, but I think we will get there. If we keep throwing the mud at the wall, we will get there on that product because it is a good product from a great place and it's got a great story. So, um, uh, and my last thing, can I go back? Is that um, we are really good at communicating our, our story to the world. And I wonder if we are actually um, very poor at communicating it to our own people. And I don't know why the breakdown is because I know there's a lot of good stories out there. So, um, yeah, it's be it'll be the one thing I'd really like to see. Thank you, Mark. And uh, on that note, we are now at eight thirty. I thank our panel for their thoughts and their consideration this evening. It's been fantastic. I'd like to remind you all that you are food producers. You produce the safest food in the world and some of the very best food in the world. And I think we're in really great hands when we look at um, the young people coming through in the next generation who are prepared to stand up above the pillar and take leadership. I thank you again. I thanks to our audience for joining us tonight. And um, thank you to the team for bringing us together. It's been a great evening. Kia ora.